Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker ordinarily with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing city. On many shows, we focus on individual New York neighborhoods. We explore their history and their energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, architectural historians, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and other interesting neighborhood personalities. On occasion, like this evening, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city, in fact or fiction, tonight's going to be fiction, that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Uh, Prior episodes have covered things like a history of the U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York. We've talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've talked about Irish immigrants. Uh, We had special episodes about Stonewall 50, about the city's LGBT history. And we've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. Uh, We've even hosted shows on the history of punk and opera in the city. On future shows, we'll journey to some of the city's parks, to the subway, or the city in the age of a, of a special, of a specific social or political movement, excuse me. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can get us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and there are other services. Tonight, we will journey to the world of New York in fiction. Well, mostly fiction, we hope it anyway. New York City as Gotham and Gotham City, uh, which actually happened way before Batman. But before we get to our guest this evening, uh, I want to mention a couple of things about this special day, the, the Batman uh, and Gotham City we're doing sort of in the Halloween season. But there's another day today that we don't celebrate anymore in New York, but we did once upon a time before we got our independence, and that is Guy Fawkes Day. Today is November 5th, Guy Fawkes Day. For those of you who don't know who Guy Fawkes was, uh, way back in the beginning of the 17th century, even before the Dutch uh, sailed into New York Harbor and founded New Amsterdam, there was a plot to blow up the king and to blow up the lords, the House of Lords, in 1605. Uh, When King James ascended to the throne after Queen Elizabeth died, King James was Protestant. He was not Catholic. And there was a plot, there were several plots in England to get rid of the monarch and to restore a Catholic monarchy, the true faith, to England. Um, a bunch of plotters, and, and this, I found this kind of interesting because I didn't know this part of the story until a couple of minutes ago. Uh, they actually rented the basement below the House of Lords. Real estate must have been in real short supply for uh, uh, the royal household uh, or for the House of Lords to, to, to sublet the basement. And wouldn't you know it, over the span of weeks, they brought in casks of gunpowder and they were going to blow up the House of Lords when the king was giving a speech. Well, as it happens, someone turned them in. Guy was caught guarding the gunpowder. He was tortured, confessed. Uh, he was executed, as were some of his fellow plotters. And it is celebrated uh, even to this day in Britain, uh, and that's England, Wales, Scotland, and also Northern Ireland with uh, something called Bonfire Night. Uh, Children throughout uh, the season make little scarecrow dolls called guys. They uh, hit people up for money in the streets. And then on the night of November 5th, there are bonfires that are set in parks, and all the guys are burned. 
Uh, we don't do that here, but we would have in the 18th century when New York was an English colony. In fact, um, uh, one of the people we're going to talk about was born the year that the English finally left New York. Our first guest on tonight's special show about New York as Gotham and Gotham City is David Griffin, who's actually the show's special consultant and a regular on Rediscovering New York. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, uh, and in his work, he provides creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. David's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David has co-hosted a Room at the Top series with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings, and I can say that with alacrity because I've been to many of the events. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. And it's with great pleasure that I welcome back David Griffin to Rediscovering New York. Uh, thanks a lot, Jeff. Great to be here again. It's always great to have you, especially the green room conversations that we have before before the show. Uh, you're a regular on the show. Um, some of our listeners know you in your background, but as we do have growing numbers of listeners, some don't. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about you and your background. You're from the New York area, but not the city itself, at least not originally. Yes, I was uh, born in uh, Long Island and uh, raised near the town of Port Jeff until I was about 12 when we moved up to the Hudson River Valley, uh, which is where my grandmother's family was from. But I've always spent my professional life in New York City. Um, it's where my siblings live, and it's where my family was from originally. So, How did you get interested in architectural history? It's, uh, it's a fascinating field to be in, and I've been lucky enough to uh, be part of some of your events. Um, how did you get into architectural history in New York specifically? Well, my mother is a painter, and whenever we would travel, she would make up dioramas and drawings of the cities and towns that we were going to. So I think that kind of enhanced our feeling of looking at our environments when we were traveling to places. And then uh, my brother and my sisters and I were all uh, the youngest, uh, the first uh, child docents for the New York Parks Department uh, in terms of working as costumed interpreters at the old Bethpage Village Restoration out on Long Island. That's New York State's Park Department. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually had the chance back then to stay overnight in some of the old houses that were part of the Village Museum. And that just kind of fed into an interest, I think, that was lifelong about how history shapes us, uh, you know, how we shape our buildings, how they shape us, um, you know, through our lives. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about a little bit of a different subject, at least in the beginning, but we're going to get to some interesting architecture or allegories on architecture in the show. Uh, tonight's show is about New York as Gotham and the origins of, Go of the name Gotham. Uh, it might surprise some of our listeners that the origins of the name Gotham came a couple of centuries before the advent of Batman. Um, before we pick up the reference that was famously coined by one of America's early popular writers, Let's first talk about the term. It actually appeared first in England, didn't it? Well, Gotham is the name of a village in the UK, a very ancient village that goes back centuries and centuries. Uh, the term Gotham comes from Gotham, meaning goat hamlet. In other words, a place where goats were herded. And it was a, um, a small village, still is a rather small community, um, in the northern part of England, north of, north of London. Hmm. 
Um, how did Gotham uh, appear in uh, the literature and folklore before, uh, before the United States came to be? Well, uh, there is a story that King John, the King John of Robin Hood's era, was interested in erecting a hunting lodge for himself and wished to do so in a forest that was just to the north of the village of Gotham. Um, he wanted to build what was known as a king's highway through there. That meant it would be a highway that would be secured for his use. Uh, this meant that potentially taxes might be raised on any village that it went through. Tolls might be expected. There would be sort of more of a police presence, if you will, in that place. Think of like the, the care that goes into the motorcade for the President of the United States now and translate into that into pre-medieval terms and you have kind of an idea of how this might disrupt a small community. So the people of Gotham thought, well, we don't really want this to happen. So they came up with a very interesting ruse, historically speaking. Um, when the king's surveyors went out to examine the existing road and see how it might be improved and widened, they noticed that the villagers seemed to be engaged in acts that suggested that they were all insane. Mm. Well, it might be appropriate for New York. Uh, before right. I actually mention something about Gotham, I just want to talk to, uh, mention something historically. You talked about the King's Highway. There's actually a street in New York City that uh, the name dates from colonial mm-hmm. days. It's the King's Highway. It yes, was known as it, the King's Highway in Brooklyn. It would have been the same type of, of kind of development, only many, many centuries later on. Yes, yes. Um, and in what might be a little omen or maybe an oracle for how crazy New York would end up being, some of the foolish activities that the townspeople of Gotham engaged in when King John's messengers came through were trying to drown an eel in a pool of water. Yes. Rolling cheeses down a hill in the hopes that they would find their way to the market for sale. And one of my favorites is building a fence around a cuckoo's nest so it would stay put. They were actually arresting the cuckoo to bring it before the sheriff of Nottingham, also the person in the Robin Hood stories. Anyway, the point is, is that insanity back then was thought to be communicable. They thought it was contagious. So the surveyors were very alarmed by this behavior. They went back. They made a report to King John. They said, Your Majesty, everyone in Gotham appears to be you know, off their chair. And King John relocated his hunting lodge to the south. Some decades later, I believe after John's passing, um, someone went through the town to kind of check up on this entire thing. And they found that everybody was perfectly normal. And uh, one of the town elders said to them, we think more fools have been through Gotham than live here meaning that they admitted, frankly, that they'd put one over on, you know, the king. But the idea of Gotham persisted as kind of a a bulwark of local insanity and foolishness and kind of more the sinister side of behavior. And the wise men of Gotham became a saying in uh, Britain of the time all the way up through the 19th century. Um, The great sort of nursery rhyme that I think we're all somewhat familiar with the three wise men of Gotham, they went to sea in a bowl. If the bowl had been stronger, this poem would be longer. <laughs> um, but there was always kind of an element that the foolishness was, in fact, a mask for people seeking to put one over on you or learn something about you that they could then use to their own devices. And that probably has as much to do with the idea of Gotham as New York as any other thing yeah. as we move forward. Well, before we talk about how uh, the author Washington Irving coined the phrase on this side of the pond, this side of the Atlantic, 
Uh, let's talk about his life. Who was Irving, and how did he wind up uh, being who he was here? Well, Washington Irving was uh, born in 1783, uh, American short story writer and really kind of one of our Renaissance men in a way. He was also an essayist, a biographer, a historian, and a diplomat of the early 19th century. Um, obviously, I think he's best known for his short stories, Rip Van Winkle, and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, you know, to kind of refer back to sort of a Halloween theme, if you will. And for the development of the Gothic revival as an element of literature, the idea that folk tales and ghost stories could be kind of turned uh, sort of on their sides to become social satires of American life. Uh, in this case, um, Irving was looking back at colonial period, but writing in the early 1800s, he was also making sort of uh, very unflattering kind of remarks about the society that he saw developing in New York City in the Hudson River Valley in the early 19th century, saying, well, these people were superstitious and somewhat gullible and somewhat lazy and somewhat craven 100 years ago. And guess what? They're still that way today. So it was a very kind of gentle way of poking fun at certain social customs and kind of practices in New York. And it was something that really kind of made Irving really sort of our first literary celebrity in a way. He, uh, he was one of the first American writers to achieve acclaim in Europe. And he encouraged other American authors, uh, people who followed him in his wake, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Herman Melville, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, he was greatly admired by many British writers, including Lord Byron, uh, Charles Dickens, and Walter Scott, who all, all of whom were associated with both social satire and the Gothic revival. He was also the first American author, major American author, to really advocate for writing as a legitimate profession, as opposed to something that a gentleman amateur did or that someone did who you know was doing that because they couldn't do anything else. Wasn't he the first American who actually made his living completely by writing yes, and selling his writing he to was, publishers? Yeah. Prior to that, people wrote and augmented their, publica their publication history with work on the side, whether they were... Uh, you know, primarily legal, whether they taught classes, whether they were in politics or whatever it was that they did. Um, almost everyone who wrote and was published in the United States prior to that wrote as an offshoot of what they were doing, not as the central thing that they did for their career. Mm. Even Poe, he did other things aside yes, from just writing. Yeah. exactly. So wasn't very good at a lot of other things, but he accepted his Most of them poetry. <laughs> well, we're going to take a short break, David, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how Irving coined the phrase Gotham, what it meant for him, as well as some of the other creative things he did to describe New Yorkers and life in New York. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? 
Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York in a special episode on New York as Gotham and Gotham City. Uh, well, Gotham predates most of what we know of Gotham as the Batman comics and the early 40s and the series and the movies since then. But uh, before we talk about Washington Irving's depiction of Gotham, I did want to talk and ask you, David, about other phrases and things he did in New York to popularize New York and to sort of get him notoriety. Uh, Knickerbocker, for example. Yes. Uh, well, Irving was uh, very much sort of a polyglot person in terms of his influences. He traveled extensively in Europe, spent time in places like Dresden, Italy, and England, etc. and so forth. And he picked up a lot of different terms and terminologies. Uh, the word Knickerbocker refers to a kind of pant worn by Dutch colonists back in the early 1700s, late 1600s, what we now think of as knickers, which are kind of tucked into a long stocking. I wore them when I was a kid, but I, <laughs> I was born in 1960, and my mother uh, loved to dress me in them when I was four and five years old. Exactly. Well, <laughs> prior to that, they were standard issue uh, boys' pants for a very, very long time on the East Coast, and that came out of the Dutch colonial tradition. Um, the the idea about knickerbocker meaning something, uh, people that are in New York City actually comes from one of Irving's earlier books, which was The History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty by Deirdrich Knickerbocker, which was published in 1809. Uh, it was the first major book that he wrote. It was a satire on the kind of self-importance of the local grandees and aristocracy and on contemporary politics. Uh, we have to understand that at this point, uh, in 1809, New York City was still smaller than... Boston and Philadelphia. It wasn't until the 1830s that the city really began to rocket upwards in prominence and overtake both those places to become a major population center. So what... Um, that was after the Erie Canal was opened. Exactly. Yeah. So what Irving was doing was saying, well, here you've got this little sort of weird anachronistic Dutch colony, and they all think very highly of themselves. They're surrounded by English settlers on both sides. In Pennsylvania's case, it would also have been the Germans. So he sort of was mocking them for their kind of insular ways and their snobbishness, which was something that comes up again and again in his writing. Uh, what he did was very, very interesting. He kind of created the first sort of internet hoax, if you will. <laughs> um, he actually put up um, 
posters all over town seeking information on quote-unquote Deirdrick Knickerbocker, a Dutch historian who had allegedly gone missing from his hotel in New York City and who was supposed to have written this book. Um, as part of the ruse, he placed a notice from the hotel's proprietor informing readers that if Mr. Knickerbocker failed to return to the hotel to pay his bill, he, the hotel proprietor, would publish the manuscript that Knickerbocker had left behind. Now, unsuspecting readers followed the story of Knickerbocker and his manuscript with a great deal of interest, and some New York City officials were concerned enough about this missing historian, who did not exist at all, to offer a reward for his safe return, because they thought, oh my gosh, somebody distinguished has disappeared in our city. So, um, Did anybody show up and claim the... No, <laughs> no? no. Irving published the, the work in 1809 under the Knickerbocker pseudonym. It met with immediate, critical, and popular success. Um, as Irving himself said, it gave me celebrity as an original work with something remarkable and uncommon in America. Today, uh, the word Knickerbocker became a name, nickname for Manhattan residents in general, particularly those who could trace their ancestry to the Dutch period. The Knickerbocker Club is a famous sort of high society club in New York City. And the New York Knickerbockers basketball team reflects the idea of this kind of uh, insularity, but also a kind of exaltation of it. So Ooh. that was one of the the nicknames that that uh, Irving really kind of created for New York City, in addition to Gotham. And I think before we started getting on the whole thing about the Big Apple, the uh, unofficial mascot of the city, I haven't seen it in a while, but I've seen uh, uh, like drawings of it was the Knickerbocker himself. Like, yes. You know, yes, yeah, the old Dutch Knickerbocker was <laughs> sort of the thing that appeared on pub signs. <laughs> Uh, on sashes, uh, you know, as uh, political cartoons representing New York's interest against cities that were at that time much more powerful, such as Philadelphia, the nascent capital in Washington, D.C., other places where people just had uh, a little bit more kind of built-up capital, if you will, than, than New York did. When does Irving first make mention of Gotham? He does so in an interesting little magazine that he created that was called Sal Magundi. And mm -hmm. Sal Magundi yeah. was a, a sort of a literary magazine, but it was also a very jokey magazine. And we get back to kind of the idea of satire, where it published articles, cartoons, illustrations, that type of thing, which really mocked the political process in New York, which uh, poked fun at uh, well-known inhabitants. It was a little bit like a cross between Spy Magazine and Mad Magazine, if you could think of those things in very early 19th century terms. Selmagundi itself is an Italian term, meaning a hodgepodge. And a Salmagundi is, in Italy to this day, a salad or a course that is made of many different chopped meats and vegetables, or potentially a dessert course, which could be different types of chopped fruit. And it sort of meant a messing together of different influences. And New York at that time was actually quite multicultural, much more so than Boston or even Philadelphia, in part because it was a Dutch colony and the Dutch had no kind of vested interest anymore in running it. So there were many, many people from all over the world who came to New York. It was a port city. As a port, it was growing much faster than even Boston was. So even in those early days, exactly. was, was, uh, it sounds like there was a higher percentage of New Yorkers who were immigrants than would have been the case exactly. in Boston or Philadelphia. Exactly. And so part of what people think Irving was referring to was the fact that New York itself was this kind of hodgepodge of different people and different ideas all coming together and trying to make themselves heard. And that something about the, the old-fashioned quality of the Dutch colonists was then balanced out by the kind of pretentiousness and kind of 
of, of the newly arrived, if you will, in the sense that there were a whole bunch of voices shouting at each other about how they thought the city should develop. Well, Samuel Gundy sounds like a term we might know as a melting pot. <laughs> exactly. There is the Samuel Gundy Arts Club on Fifth Avenue in a very historic brownstone that actually dates back to Irving's time period. And it, it was called the New York City Sketch Club when it was first founded in the 1860s, 1870s, and then was renamed the Samuel Gundy Club. Potentially, people think to reflect the influence of Washington Irving. But it was in a um, uh, an issue of Salma Gundy in the 1840s where um, Washington Irving first used the term Gotham to denote New York and probably meant, you know, this is sort of like a, the cacophony of the city, the bedlam of the city, the insane asylum that is New York. It can only be called Gotham. What are some of the ways that he depicted Gotham in his writing? Uh, I mean, basically, he although he used the term and people, other people really kind of took off with it. Uh, his idea of New York was as a kind of a a series of concentric chambers of foolishness, and this idea that there was never any kind of one overriding thing in New York was sort of very interesting. Whereas if you looked at Boston satirical papers or satirical tape papers in Philadelphia, they satirized a ruling class that was very much more unified than, than was the case in New York during the time of Irving's writings. So it sounds like uh, it was kind of rough and tumble back then as well. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, well, Irving lived in England and in Dresden. I was quite surprised to hear that he lived in Dresden and, the th and that he wrote Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow when he was living in Germany. Uh, although it wouldn't have been Germany then, it would have been whatever state, uh, would have been Saxony or I don't know where Dresden is. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, I'm afraid the, I don't either. One of the German principalities, but uh, there was no Germany until uh, the 1860s, I think, until it was unified under uh, Bismarck. Um, but he came back to the United States some decades later, and he bought a cottage in Tarrytown. Yes, he bought a very old, sort of falling apart Dutch colonial house, and he put a lot of time and renovation into it, actually probably overextended himself financially to renovate it. Uh, he loved the house. He called it Sunnyside. He once referred to it as being as full of old crooks and gables as an old Dutch hat. Uh, and in the development of Sunnyside, he introduced stepped gables, barge boards, and other decorative elements that actually were the forerunner of something else. It sounds like Gotham, but it isn't. It's the Gothic revival. And actually, there's no real connection between the word Gotham, meaning, as we said before, goat ham, goat hamlet, and Gotham from the Gothic from the Goths. But Washington Irving, in his use of fairy tales, ghost stories, and mysterious goings-on, was a, a, a vast proponent of the Gothic in um, the United States, uh, much like a earlier uh, writer in the United Kingdom was. Yes, Horace Walpole. In fact, mm -hmm. I took a look at it, and it's interesting that uh, even though Gothic and Gotham have different origins, that when uh, a little bit later in the show we're going to talk about modern, uh, more recent depictions of Gotham, which actually are quite Gothic in, right, in, exactly. in, in popular culture. Um, but when I took a look at, at uh, Irving's house in Sunnyside, it actually reminded me a little bit of Strawberry Hill in London, mm -hmm. which Horace Walpole, he didn't build. Uh, he, uh, he inherited the estate from his family, and uh, he affected the turrets and the additions to it, which, and, and Walpole is known 
as the father of the Gothic revival movement in Britain. It was the end of the nineteenth, the end of the eighteenth century, which would have been before right. uh, Irving. But uh, I wonder if Irving was influenced at all by by Walpole. I think he definitely was. Uh, many people were, and Walpole was also a satirist. And, uh, and it had an interest in folklore as well. So he was definitely a major influence, I think, on Irving as he developed mm-hmm. his career. And Irving also was uh, one of the ways he was a revolutionary writer is that he didn't try to teach his readers anything, not anything moralistic, anything that they should be uh, pay attention to religion or anything else. He wrote for the sheer joy uh, of writing and for the act of entertaining his, his readers. Uh, what was Irving's life like in his later years? Well, he had a very interesting life uh, in that he did come back, as we said, to the United States um, after uh, a great period of time. But he served later in his life under President John Tyler as a um, sort of an ambassador emissary to Spain, which at that point was undergoing a, a great deal of political turmoil. And he served as a very successful contact for three to four years over in Spain before returning to the United States and was uh, almost as beloved and as famed in Europe as a diplomat as he had been as an author prior to that time. Hmm. Well, maybe very characteristic of Irving uh, as the father, well, I don't know he's known as the father of the Gothic revival movement in the United States, but certainly one of the one of the four parents. Um, and also the uh, Gothic was known as as being romantic. Uh, one of Irving's lasting contributions to culture in this country is the way that we celebrate Christmas. Yes, his influence on the Christmas celebration was in part derived from time that he spent in England. Um, He actually spent some time in an old English manor house that was rather removed from London, and they were practicing customs still there that were on the verge of dying out in England. And he became very fascinated by this, and he wrote an entire sort of sort of memoir on how how the British celebrate Christmas. And of course, it was not the way the British were celebrating Christmas anymore. But all of a sudden, guess what? It became the way that the uh, Americans began to celebrate Christmas. So he also is thought to have influenced the idea of Santa Claus as possessing a flying sleigh. He wrote a, a kind of a, a dream uh, story in which Santa Claus appears in a flying wagon and after that, we begin to see certain things like the reindeer driving it, the, the sleigh driving it. These are derived now in part from Dutch and from Scandinavian sources, but they kind of come together after Irving's idea of the wagon to create the idea of the sleigh flying through the air. So this is all well before uh, The Night Before Christmas, the famous poem by C. Clement Moore. It's before Thomas Nast. It's before you know the Coca-Cola industry got its hands on Santa. Uh, <laughs> and of course, the idea that we call Santa Santa Claus comes in part from the Dutch. It comes from Sinterklaas, which is the old Dutch colonial uh, version of St. Nicholas that we are familiar with in this country. So all of that was first repopularized by Washington Irving, and then through people like Moore, through people like Nass, through the good folks of the Coca-Cola Company, uh, we have the Santa Claus that we know throughout the United States today. And, of course, Irving was a New Yorker, so let's yes. we'll be proud of that. Exactly. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to fast forward about a century to more modern depictions of New York as Gotham. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Hi. 
I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, usually about its neighborhoods, but also other things, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Usually fact, but very occasionally, like tonight, a little fiction thrown in. There's another great show on the air about New York, and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can tune him in on voiceamerica.com and, of course, also on podcasts like our show. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Those handles are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though this is not a show about the real estate business in New York, I am a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you all with your real estate needs. You can reach me at my team at 646-306-4761. David, let's talk a little bit about Landmark Branding and your business. What does Landmark Branding do exactly? Thing. So uh, I founded Landmark Branding in 2013, and I provide marketing support for brokers, uh, for developers, for architects and design firms. Uh, basically, uh, my focus is on historically significant buildings, but also new construction. And I provide everything from VIP tours to brokers' bios, listings. Uh, I work with Brown Stoner. Uh, I have an article coming out on 10 Montague Terrace. Very excited about that. Uh, one of the grandest brownstones ever built in 
New York City. Um, I work with uh, numerous design firms as well uh, and marketing firms and uh, provide, provide everything from web website content to uh, sort of branding opportunities and engagement with the public. Uh, as you said, we I run the... Um, uh, Room at the Top series with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Dart New York, a uh, tour of historic skyscrapers throughout the city. It's very exciting to be able to do that. And we talk about uh, the importance of public art and architecture as economic engines for New York City. I really believe good design is good business. Um, I always feel my, my tag is make the skyline your bottom line. And if you're not going to demolish, polish. Oh, so. <laughs> I love it. Um, you also have an interesting uh, blog. Now that we're talking about Gotham, if uh, if this was a street in Gotham, it would be called Gotham Avenue. What's your, what's your blog about? The about? blog is Every Building on Fifth, and it is a blog that covers every single building on Fifth Avenue from the Washington Square Arch all the way up to the Great Armory in Harlem. Uh, it's 600 posts, I believe, and I am about to begin to make additions to it. We've completed the entire avenue, but now we're going back and visiting places that have been either restored, renovated, replaced with new buildings, new construction, and kind of updating how the avenue is developing um, over the last several years. Uh, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you to find out about Landmark Branding or any of your other work, how would they do that? My website is landmarkbranding.com, and my email address is dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. The blog is also on the website, Every Building on Fifth. And, uh, yeah, would love to hear from anybody who has questions. Excellent. Well, thanks. Um, now fast-forwarding from the days of Washington Irving to about 100 years later, um, when did the phrase or the name of the city, Gotham City, first appear? Because uh, Irving just talks about Gotham, but then we have Gotham City. Gotham City, it's a, well, as we all know, it's a fictional city appearing, or is it? Uh, <laughs> appearing in American comic books uh, published by DC. Uh, best known, of course, is the home of Batman, although it has a couple of other famous inhabitants by this point. Most of them not the most pleasant people you've ever heard of. Uh, the city was actually first identified as Batman's place Well, not of anymore. Residence. I think he's in Florida now, but... Uh, well, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> Orange man. There you go. Um, the city was first identified as Batman's place of residence in Batman number four, which was in December of 1940 and has since been the primary setting for stories featuring the character. Now, we're not going to really talk a little bit about we're not going to talk much about the Batman uh, version of Gotham City in the comics because that would take literally hours and hours. We're talking about almost 80 years worth of material there, and you know we could be here all night. So we're going to concentrate a little bit more on the films, but there are some things that I would like to point out about that particular setting. And I also One, wanted to ask you about Bill Finger and Bob Kane. And this, yes. yes. So uh, the writer Bill Finger, who has been uh, credited with helping create Batman, along with Bob Kane, who is an artist and writer who is more well-known in the, in the kind of history of the development of DC, um, was asked about the naming of the city and the reason for changing Batman's locale from New York City to a fictional city, since it was first thought that Batman would simply be an inhabitant of New York. So he said, originally, I was going to call Gotham City Civic City. Then I tried Capital City. The Hunger Games, everybody. Shout out to that, possibly. Then Coast City. 
then he flipped through the New York City phone book. He didn't like any of these names, and neither do we, I think, and spotted the name Gotham Jewelers. Obviously, Gotham Jewelers must have been named after Washington Irving's take on New York City as Gotham. And he said, that's it, Gotham City. We didn't call it New York because we wanted anybody in any city to identify with it. So in other words, they were trying to create a kind of a fictional location that they had a little bit more availability to play with. In other words, they didn't have to pay attention to New York's specific geography, the people who live there. Um, Spider-Man, for example, is very much an inhabitant of New York City. And in some ways, that's been very interesting. But in some ways, we know that that's kind of curtailed what the uh, the writers for Spider-Man can do because Times Square exists as Times Square and you can't pretend it isn't Times Square. Mm-hmm. Well, the people in Batman had a lot more room to kind of play with the idea of the city. And the minute they began to kind of think about that, it's amazing how much more menacing and kind of surrealistic the city became. Because they also could draw on images. We're talking about New York as Gotham City, but some of the imagery, and we'll talk about it uh, in, in, in a short while, in some of the movies actually also comes from other cities in the United States. Exactly. And not just New York. So Batman writer and editor Dennis O'Neill has said that figuratively, Batman's Gotham City is akin to, quote, Manhattan below 14th Street at 11 minutes past midnight on the coldest night in November which might be tonight, we never know. Um, There's also a statement, uh, quote, Metropolis is New York in the daytime, Gotham City is New York at night. That has been variously attributed to comics creators Frank Miller and John Byrne. And of course, Metropolis is the the location for the Superman comics. Um, Interestingly enough, in the early comic books, Gotham City was depicted as more or less a regular city. Uh, A lot of things took place at night because that was the way the storylines worked. But the city itself wasn't seen as particularly sinister. And it isn't until the films begin to kind of come on board that we begin to see a reinvention of Gotham as actually a rather peculiar place and something that is excessively and rather frighteningly stylized. And also gothic, too. Yes. The gothic gothic architecture really comes out in in the the development of the films. Mm. One question I wanted to ask you, especially being an architectural historian, how did the gothic revival movement or the, the... um, some of the symbolism of the Gothic revival movement play a role in the representation of Gotham City. Well, you have a city at night. You have a city that is haunted by a vast bat. It's sort of like um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, writ very, 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 very large, except not a cathedral. And then you had the idea that many of New York's iconic skyscrapers, such as the Woolworth Building or the Chrysler Building, um, have a kind of a gothic element to them. They, they seek to accentuate the vertical. They're very structural-oriented. They're very ornate. Um, obviously, the Chrysler Building is futuristic, while the Woolworth Building harks back to the actual gothic past. But they're closer than not in terms of how the style kind of enhances the, the, the silhouette of the skyline, if you will. And even a lot of New York's modern architecture, if we think about literal buildings such as the Seagram Building, uh, has to do with making the construction of the building very, very evident. And if you think about it, the piers of the big steel and glass skyscrapers are not entirely unlike. In fact, they are more like than not 
the buttresses of actual Gothic cathedrals, and that that is the way that the building is being held up, and that is part and parcel of how the architecture is expressing itself. So although those buildings have a kind of a classical plan and that they're very rational, they're squared off, you know, they're sort of dignified, they're not seeking to be theatrical, they are very, very Gothic in terms of their basic spin to New York's architecture as a whole and kind of reinvest it with something and say, you know, here's this kind of powerful kind of titanic work of engineering that's really lifting everything up, 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 up. And is that verticality a good thing or is it something that's actually overbearing and sinister? You know, you think of Edgar Allan Poe's great line, death looking gigantically down, and that gives you already an idea of Batman kind of brooding over the cornices and gargoyles and the rooftop penthouses of Gotham. Well, speaking of uh, highness and uh, skyscrapers, New York is not the only city that is used as imagery for Gotham, is it? Uh, no. Actually, there's some thought uh, from writers in the original Batman comics that Chicago was an equally important source of inspiration. In part, that's because Chicago, again, it was the, one of the homes of the skyscraper along with New York. The two cities kind of developed that building type uh, contiguously, if you will. Uh, many people would argue that in Chicago, the skyscraper achieved a kind of artistic supremacy prior to New York. Uh, I wouldn't disagree with that. The other thing is that Chicago has alleyways. The blocks are much longer, they're deeper. New York City really has no alleys. Many people think of New York City as having alleyways all over the place. It doesn't. You don't. That's no. something that is a cliche from superhero and horror films. It does not exist here. There are maybe two or three streets in all of Manhattan that are actually considered alleyways. Everything else is a public street. And of course, a lot of the happening is late at night in Batman, especially mm. the, the fights take place in, in the alleyways. In dark alleyways. Exactly. Yes. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin about Gotham and New York, and also about some of the more recent depictions of Batman in media and culture. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio. 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com 
We're back to Rediscovering New York, and this episode about New York is Gotham. God, we've had so many interesting things to talk about with David Griffin that uh, time has been going by, but we have to make sure we don't give short, short shrift to the recent depictions of Gotham, to the recent Batman movies. So, uh, obviously, the, the first really major Batman film, there were a couple that came out in the 1960s or sort of tied into the television show, was, of course, Tim Burton's Batman in 1989. And this really kind of brought everything up a notch, I think. I think the comic books responded to this. I think the kind of idea of Gotham responded to this. Tim Burton, of course, is a director and artist whose work has always been very, very heavily attenuated, very stylized, works like Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. You just see a strain of kind of macabre playfulness and creativity, and he really pulled out all the stops for the first film. Uh, The designer for Batman was Anton Furst, a British designer who won an Academy Award for his work on the film, and he created a kind of a expressionistic nightmare of Gotham based on New York City architectural types. First was not a great admirer of New York. He didn't particularly like the city, and he didn't pull his punches with his (laughs) kind of aesthetic portrayal of it, and yet he did create something that I think is very, very involving and very richly rewarding when you look at it. Um, His version of Gotham incorporates a gigantic cathedral based in part on the castle of the Wicked Witch of the West in the Wizard of Oz, up at the top, but also references the towers of Riverside Cathedral near Columbia University, Riverside Church, which is the tallest church spire in the United States and the 24th tallest in the world. Uh, Another location the Flugelheim Museum, obviously satirizes the Guggenheim, but it's based more on works by the great Japanese architect Shin Takamatsu, whose work references locomotive and automobile design, as well as art deco and modernist architecture. Takamatsu's arc complex in Kyoto displays the designer's interest in the thoughts and practices of engineers that emerged during the machine age of the Industrial Revolution. He really is a remarkable architect, and the Flugelheim very much closely follows that particular building. If people Google images of that, they'll see where first got the idea from the museum and its interiors. And of course, it's all in Gotham City. (laughs) Exactly. So then the second film, Batman Returns, starring Michelle Pfeiffer, and um, uh, of course, that marvelous actor is the Penguin... Danny DeVito. Uh, Yes, Danny DeVito did a marvelous job. Uh, Production designer Bo Welch took over from First because First at that point was working on another film and could commit to it. He based his designs on First Concepts, but being an American, he invested them with a sense of pop culture and the kind of a carnivalesque sensibility. So the city seems a little bit less oppressive and a little bit more freakish and sort of dreamlike. Just like the Penguin. Exactly. His version of Gotham Square is a satire of Rockefeller Center including vast statues in a kind of Soviet fascist style that are intended to symbolize very ironically the quote-unquote nobility of work and industry. There's a marvelous creepy zoo that serves as the lair of the penguin, which takes visual cues from the no longer extant, by the way, original version of the Central Park Children's Zoo, which was in the storybook style, kind of a 1950s, very whimsical, very bright style, and which was widely criticized when first opened as being grotesquely out of character with the rest of the park. The Children's Zoo has been uh, sort of renovated and rebuilt since then, and it's much more sort of naturalistic seeming and less kind of um, theme park-like. So we've kind of lost the idea that that was actually based on a real place, but it was. Uh, Joel Schumacher takes over directing the Batman film series from Tim Burton. 
and Barbara Ling handled the production design for both Schumacher's Batman Forever, which was in 1995, and then in 1997, Batman and Robin. Ling is an incredibly talented designer. Her vision of Gotham City was luminous and outlandish. It was an evocation of modern expressionism and constructivism, as well as the giganticism of certain Soviet architectural projects. She admitted that her influences were more based on Tokyo and on certain forms of Japanese animation. Uh, she described her own Gotham as, quote-unquote, a world's fair on ecstasy. Uh, the films were much more cartoonish. They were intended to be more upbeat than the Burton films were. And I would say, perhaps for this reason, they were really less popular overall. A lot of people actually had a negative reaction to it. They thought that Schumacher had erred and had gone a little bit too far afield. Gotham was too bright. It was too much of a kind of a multicolored you know, sort of fun park ride. It didn't have the sense, as one critic said, of a whole weird city toiling under a bizarre miasma. It just looked like a collection of bizarre sets. I don't mm. say that as being against Ling because I think Ling really delivered, but what she delivered was not something that they felt was piecemeal with where Gotham was going. It was an offshoot of the Gotham City that we had all come to know from the earlier exactly. films. Exactly. So then we have, all of a sudden, a dramatic turn of, of a kind of aesthetic choices and we have the reboot of the Batman films with Christopher Nolan and Nolan had lived for quite a while in Chicago and he stated flat out that for him Chicago, not New York, is the basis of Gotham. The majority of both Batman Begins, which came out in 2005, and The Dark Knight in 2008 were filmed there. And the first film had more sort of fantastical elements woven through it. It had an elevated train that was obviously based on the elevated in Chicago, but was also much more sort of elaborate. It had certain Art Deco features. It had some CGI skyscrapers and a kind of a footprint, if you will. But it basically was Chicago as Chicago. And then the second film they dispensed almost entirely with any fantastic trappings at all and Christian Bale as Batman is basically battling the Joker Heath Ledger in a city that is very very much keyed into the real sensibility of Chicago I feel in a way that there was some pushback to this as well interestingly enough I think people felt well you know it doesn't have to be Tim Burton but it should look a little bit more than just like you know the city that we see every day when we're going to work and the for the third film in the series batman uh rises um the they sort of left chicago behind interestingly enough the same director you know same same uh thing so, so the subsequent film dark knight wayne enterprises is now the richard j daly center um the production takes a turn away from Chicago. It utilizes locations in Pittsburgh, in Los Angeles, downtown, in New York City, again, in Newark, in New Jersey, London, and Glasgow, in every sense kind of sort of tapping out more bow arts and gothic-oriented buildings than the first two films had done. And what you see there is a city that is a little bit more a step towards Tim Burton in terms of the general architectural sensibility, but it's still very much rooted in the reality of actual mm. buildings. Well, we can't talk about Gotham, the depictions about Gotham, without speaking about the latest film about Gotham, Joker. Yes. So the recent Joker film was shot almost entirely on location, um, including many much dingier districts than we see in any of the films, uh, or even in the television series Gotham, which I was following and really admired, which was set mostly in New York City, real locations using New York City, but also uh, some CGI-added skyscrapers. Um, 
in Joker, we don't really see a lot of CGI. But we do see is kind of interesting when you compare it with the Christopher Nolan films and that somehow the film makes New York City and its environs look fantastical. It really is kind of a place that is looking more corrupt, almost as if the buildings themselves are sort of rotting. And part, uh, it was filmed, a lot of it was filmed in Newark, New Jersey. It was a major source of signage and billboards that are still sort of intact from the 1960s, 1970s on the main district. You get a shot of the great Newark Theater, which is actually a gorgeous theater. It has a very old-fashioned marquee. But a lot of the signs for the commercial establishments, they still incorporate the old neon the old kind of logos that you would have seen in the late 60s and early 1970s in New York. All of that has been brushed away in most of Manhattan. And in Newark, a lot of it is still intact. So they used Newark quite a bit. They did use Coney Island. There is a brief shot of the Wonder Wheel in one scene, just seen in the distance as subway trains are passing overhead. It's a reference, of course, as the film is obsessed kind of with 1970s American cinema, to the Warriors, which was set out in Coney Island as kind of this, this kind of gag. There's a subway station where the titular character, Joachim um, Phoenix's Joker, is attacked. Uh, it's an actual abandoned subway station at Ninth Avenue in Brooklyn. And you can see Ooh. the original mosaic sort of peeling off the walls. So it really is quite amazing. And of course, we can't uh, not mention the film's best known sequence, the Joker dancing down a set of stairs that connect two streets near Shakespeare Avenue in the Bronx. Mm. Well, David, we're out of time. This has been an amazing episode exploring New York as Gotham and Gotham City. Uh, our guest has been David Griffin, who is not only our guest today, but who's also our special consultant on Rediscovering New York. David, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. Uh, well, we're running out of time. Uh, so you can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can thank our sponsors. I'd like to thank them, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Tom Siaka. Uh, one more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion, as well as the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is Sam Lebowitz. David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Our guest tonight is our special consultant. And most importantly, stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. 
fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 